Tonight's uh, sermon is called Sexual Issues. It's the third in our new series on uh, Proverbs. It's called Vintage Wisdom. And so we're looking at wisdom and we're saying, is this wisdom still true today? The answer is yes, but we're going to deal with it. We're going to unpack it and we're going to wrestle through it. You know, the Christian view of sex, as many of you are aware, is very countercultural. We uh, we come at it oftentimes, and many of us feel this way, not just in the room, but outside the room, that it is uh, unnecessarily restrictive, that it's a little out of touch, and frankly, a lot of people feel that it's foolish, right? Because here's what logic says. Here's what logic in regards to sex says. I have sexual desires. I have sexual urges, which means I need to fulfill them. And so to refrain from fulfilling them until the moment I'm going to be married, which whenever that's going to be, if that's going to be, seems foolish. Plus, part of dating is trying to determine whether or not you're compatible with someone. And so you're trying to determine, am I spiritually compatible? Am I emotionally compatible? Do we have the similar interest? And you're also asking the question, are we going to be physically compatible? So logic says, why in the world would you refrain from having sex until you're married. See, culture and, and scripture actually agree on one thing currently. Most people would still assert that when you're married or in a serious relationship, faithfulness is wise. That committing adultery or cheating is destructive and is foolish. Having a side piece never turns out well for anyone involved. So we agree on that, but the idea where scripture comes across the board, not just in Proverbs, but all over scripture and says, here's wisdom. Wait to have sex until you make a covenant with someone else where you not only commit your body, but you commit your mind and your heart and even your relationship with God, your faith is joined together. Wait until there, because when you actually engage in sex there, you find the beauty and the the reason behind the creation of sex, which wasn't simply for procreation, but also for enjoyment and transformation and deepening of a relationship. But that's hard for us to, to take in. And I want to say something at the very beginning. This sermon is not a sermon of judgment, okay? I'm very aware of the pressures and patience, what it's like in this city specifically what it's like to be a young person you know i can't begin to imagine the struggle of of being single here in many ways and dating and it's it's a battle to to say that i'm going to strive after i'm going to run after sexual purity as scripture defines it and i'm going to hold on to this as wisdom it's not easy but this is a sermon on wisdom not on judgment on your past or even your current state of sexual activity. But it's a question of wisdom. And it's a very important question of wisdom. It's not the question of, is it wise for me? That's how we kind of treat wisdom all the time, right? It has to be wisdom for me. I don't care if it's wisdom for anybody else, but is it wise for me? Instead, we're going to ask the question, is this wise universally? Is this wise across the board? Not just for me, but for anyone. Is this truth? So my hope is that whether you're here tonight and you're married and you have a healthy sex life or you're married and sex is an issue in your relationship or you're dating and you're seeking and struggling to be pure and to refrain from having sex until you get married or whether you're dating and you're sexually active and and you don't see a problem with it or you're single and you're trying to abstain from having sex and you're upholding abstinence or you're single and you're having sex and you again don't see a problem with it. 
what I want to ask every single one of us to do, which is difficult, is take your preconceived opinions on sex and lay them aside for a night, for just a brief moment as we deal with what Proverbs is saying and allow yourself to say, what if I presumed that this was truly wise, universally wise for everyone And try to absorb that and wrestle through that. We talked about last week that when you deal with the book of Proverbs, you have to give it time. You have to put in work. It's not just little motivational phrases. These are deep, profound truths that are condensed into singular sentences. And so do the hard work of allowing your mind to really process and say, is this truly marriage as a covenant? And it's really important that we start out talking about that because we don't use that language. We don't enter into covenants uh, besides the covenant of marriage. We, we don't really understand. And so what happens a lot of times is when we think of covenant, we say it's a contract. We treat it as simply a legal arrangement, right? You enter into a contract, which is the same thing in the Bible. They called it a covenant. But a, really a covenant is much deeper than a contract. It's more powerfully connecting emotionally than a contract simply is and just a legal relationship. But it's also more permanent and more enduring than just a mere emotional relationship. You know, uh, when I was living in Broward, I, had a, I was in a contract with DirecTV. And in this relationship, DirecTV knew in this contractual agreement that they needed to provide for my needs or else I was going to look somewhere else. So here's what I did. Every single summer, I called DirecTV and I said, listen, um, I just want you to know I'm going to begin looking around. You know, we're in this relationship, but I'm always looking for an upgrade and you know that. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to call AT&T. I'm going to call Dish. I'm going to call Comcast and I'm going to see what they have to offer. I just want to let you know AT&T or DirecTV what's going on. And they're like, well, please don't leave. You've been such a loyal customer. And I was like, well, I just, I want you to know. So they call me back and here's what they'd say. Do you like NFL Sunday ticket? I said, of course I like NFL Sunday ticket. You know that because I've had it every single year. And they're like, well, we would like to offer you NFL Sunday ticket for free if you remain as a customer. And so I said, well, let me think about it. Right. So then I call, then they call me back the next day and they said, listen, Mr. Brown, you know, that's kind of cool. You know, they call you Mr. Brown. You feel like a full grown adult. Mr. Brown, we'd like to offer you not only NFL Sunday ticket, but the movie channels, you know, and uh, just to stay in the, re- in, in the relationship. It's like, okay, you know, that meets my needs. So this is going to work. We'll do another year. We'll, you know, we'll do the phone call again next summer and we'll see what's going on. But see, this is what happens in a contractual agreement, right? In a contractual agreement, you have a relationship with someone. Sometimes it's binding, but you know you can get out of it and you're always looking for an upgrade, You're in a relationship because it's meeting your needs. They're providing what you're looking for. But if someone else or something else comes along that may provide for your needs more significantly, then you're probably going to jump ship and go to that person or to that thing. And see, this is so often what happens, right, in, in regards to our relationships when we treat them simply like contracts, is that you're in this contractual engagement, or this relationship, that you're always looking to upgrade. But that's not what a covenant is. A covenant is a permanent binding relationship where there are no other upgrades. This is the relationship. And one of, one of the issues for us is when we're kind of going out and we're looking for 
these kind of relationships that we're in contractually, whether they're friends, whether we're dating, whether you're married, and you're always processing and thinking about what the next upgrade is, especially is true regarding sex. You ask yourself, is this person going to meet my needs sexually? Is, could someone else meet my needs better sexually? And you're processing that and you're thinking through that. And so many relationships oftentimes fall apart, right? Because you have that pressure and that feeling like, I don't know if this person, you know, I can be with this person sexually for the rest of my life. And so you jump ship to someone else. Marriages fall prey to this as well, right? Well, I don't know if this person is making me happy anymore. They're not fulfilling my needs anymore. And so, you know, we need to kind of put an end to the, to the marriage even to see if there's someone else that can satisfy my needs sexually. But the covenant is the exact opposite. A covenant says, it's not about my needs. I'm asking to recalibrate my needs to include another person. So in a marriage covenant, not just simply a dating contractual relationship, but in a marriage covenant, you say, my needs are now subjected to yours and they include yours and now what my attention is on is not what are my needs and are you meeting my needs well my attention is actually on what are the needs of our relationship you elevate the needs and a covenant of the relationship over your own personal needs you seek the common good of the relationship instead of your own common good and that is very different from this consumer contractual agreement that we typically have as we engage with different people in relationships. And so the biblical idea here is that the biblical sexual ethic is that you are to wait to have sex until you are in a covenant with someone where two people have come together and you've said, my needs now include yours. And in many ways, my needs are subjected to your needs. And I am actually going to care about the relationship that my own individual needs. There is no longer looking for upgrades. This is where I'm meant to be. And I'm going to live my life seeking the common good of this union. And see, the biblical idea, right, obviously, is that two people that come together would both have this mentality. And see, one of the dangerous things that happens a lot of times is when one person comes in with the idea of a covenant and the other person comes in with the idea of this consumer contractual relationship, the covenanting person gets taken advantage of, right? Because one person is in the relationship for their needs, person is looking to elevate the other person's needs and they get taken advantage of but the biblical idea is that two people come together in a relationship and they get married and they covenant together where the needs of the the individual needs and you can see already some of the beauty of this i think this is one of the most beautiful even though it's so counterculture it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the christian faith this idea of purity until a covenant because you can imagine whether you're married, whether you hope to be married one day, whether you're dating, whatever the case may be, you, as you imagine what it looks like to be in a covenant with someone else, there is security there. You can be yourself. You don't have to market yourself anymore. You don't have to worry about whether or not you are producing a product that the other person likes and whether or not their likes and their needs have changed and whether or not you can ever meet them, and are they thinking and looking and checking out other opportunities. Because in a covenant, that's not the nature of the relationship. The nature of the relationship is that both people are subjecting their needs to each other for the benefit of the whole. And so the beginning of this series of Proverbs that we're reading tonight comes in chapter 5, and it's with this mentality 
that you are to wait, the biblical sexual ethic, you are to wait to have sex until you're in a covenant with someone else, that this father is speaking to his son. Many Proverbs are written in this style, right? Where a father is speaking to his son. Now, the inverse is also true. It could be a father or a mother speaking to their daughter, right? What is true for the man is also true for the woman. And so just because it says son or it says wife, the inverse as well is true. It's just in this arrangement, as Solomon writes this particular proverb, he's speaking in this way as he would speak to his son. And so here's what he says in the very beginning of chapter 5. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. So here, what he's speaking about, when he speaks about water, he's speaking about sexual desires. Okay, And when he speaks about a cistern, he's speaking about his spouse, the son's spouse, in this case his wife, right? So he's saying, you are to drink, you are to satisfy your sexual desires from your own cistern, your own spouse. And then he says, flowing water from your own well. That when you do this, when you drink your sexual desires, when you quench your sexual desires in this covenant relationship with your spouse, it's like flowing water from a well. It's just fresh and beautiful and pure and delicious water that springs up. Now, there are a lot of other themes that are stemming from the original language, but I don't want to get all HBO on you guys tonight. So we're just going to lay there. If you want to know anything else, you can come talk to me after and I will, I will give you the HBO version. But the second part of this verse, as he's just said that, right? So he tells his son, engage and fulfill and quench your sexual desires from your own cistern, from your spouse. It'll be this life-giving, delicious, pure, wonderful relationship. And then he says, should your springs be scattered streams of water in the streets? And so the question here that he's saying is, okay... The opposite of that would be would to say, well, you know what? I, I don't want to drink. What if I just drink from the, the water that's on the side of the street? You know, what if I just quench my sexual desires with any water that's around me? If I just kind of, you know, dip down and pull up a little bit of water and have a sip and taste good and then I move on. See, what he's saying here, he's comparing the two, right? He's saying, do not follow pray to this. This is not just true now culturally. It was true then as well, right? Don't fall prey to the idea that, well, I don't, why do I need to wait to, to fulfill my sexual desires with my wife, with my cistern, you know, like, why can't I just go to the water right there? Everyone else does it. See, what, he, what he's alluding to, he's, he's comparing these two, right? Because cisterns were prized possessions. They were privately owned. They were only accessible by the landowner. And so it's only accessible to you. It is abundant. It is pure. He's saying, don't fall prey to thinking that, well, why wait for that? Why not just go drink from the water that everybody drinks from? He's comparing these things. He's saying, be mindful of this. Don't fall prey to that. And verse 11, chapter 11, verses 16 and 22, he's getting at the same thing. He says, a woman of gentle grace gets respect, but men of rough violence grab for loot. Like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful face on an empty head or is a beautiful face without discretion. 
See, he's holding these two things together. He's saying that, you know, wisdom is gentle grace, which gets respect. It's having this inner gentle grace as opposed to foolishness, which has no discretion. It just takes what it wants. It sees the water, reach down, take the water, drink the water, move on. But wisdom is mindful. Wisdom is gracious. Wisdom is thoughtful. And that is deserving of much respect. See, it's saying here that that sex in many ways can be used for power, right? It's just grabbing for what you want, just to fulfill your sexual desires. But not only can it just be for power, but it can also be shallow. This is what he says in the next, right? He says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout. See, he's comparing here and he's saying, listen, if you, you can treat sex as like a power play where you just want to take and fill and you just take whatever you want. You just grab for loot. Or you can treat it like this, this shallow, casual, it's not a big deal. And, and the comparison of that is it's like a gold ring in a pig's snout. You're treating something that is precious and you're putting it on something like a pig that's, that's filthy. You're, you're degrading the actual gold by putting it on this dirty, smelly, covered in flies animal. And he says it's, it's like a beautiful woman with an empty head or without any discretion. It's this idea that we're so infatuated with our external experience or external appearance and, and all the things that we can feel and experience physically that we're wasting something beautiful. We're wasting the gold, if you will, by putting it on something that is dirty and filthy it's wasteful it's it's worthless and chapter 30 is is kind of taking us along this journey as he's saying all these different themes that sex can be used as power it can be used in a manner where we just treat it shallow and we just take what we want and why should i wait you know and enjoy it with the cistern when the water's right here it's all around me in chapter 30 chapter 30 verses 18 through 20 he says three things are too wonderful for me for i do not understand This is where it gets a little wild, guys. He says, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas. Now, he's speaking here about sex. Okay, these are emblematic of sex. And he's saying these things, that sex in and of itself is wonderful. It's so wonderful you can barely comprehend it. And notice what he compares it to. He says it's like an eagle soaring in the sky. It's like a snake slithering on the ground. It's like... A ship rocking back and forth in the high seas. You can see, I mean, Proverbs is no joke, guys. Okay? So he says sex is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's almost hard to process how wonderful it is. But the fourth thing is too wonderful. Its beauty is incomparable. And it says it's the way of a man with a virgin. Or something so beautiful about waiting or deciding to, to start today and to wait and to commit to engaging in this wonderful, beautiful act that is written deep down in our heart. And we all desire and we want to experience it. And it's a wonderful experience, but there's something even more beautiful and wonderful when you wait to enjoy it from your own cistern. When you're not just taking from the public what everybody drinks from, but you're protecting something that is like gold and you're waiting to this moment where it should be enjoyed i think oftentimes maybe this is one of the reasons why in church 
maybe we shy away from this topic. We don't talk about it publicly. Or uh, it comes across, you know, in a way that we don't really understand. Why would I wait? Because it's so wonderful, it's really hard to actually even explain. It's what the Proverbs is saying, that it's so wonderful that you can't even really speak about it in a way where you can fully comprehend its beauty. And then he he compares it here and he says, in comparison to this incomprehensible beauty of, of purity or deciding to commit to purity, regardless of what your past has been, but saying, I'm going to work towards that. I'm, I'm going to uphold that. I'm going to treat it like gold. He says in verse 20, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. See, on the surface, when you read this, right, it, it just seems like he's talking about the frequency of sex, right? He, he's saying the virgin waits to have sex with her husband or his wife, where the adulteress is someone who has constant sex with many partners. But see, th- there's something much deeper here. Remember how we talked about it? Proverbs is condensed truth into singular lines, so, but what's below this and what he's saying really here is not simply the, the frequency of sex. He's speaking about the treatment of sex. See, the, the virgin is not prude, is not anti-sexual. The, the virgin has the same level of sexual desires as the adulteress. The, the comparison here is that the virgin, regardless of what their past has been, if they're committing themselves to wait until... They enter into a covenant. The virgin treats sex as something precious and sacred, as gold, something powerful and deepening. Where the adulteress treats sex casually. It, you know, the comparison here is that it, it you just it's something you eat and then you wipe your mouth and you move on. It's like I'm hungry, then I'm just going to eat a cheeseburger. Maybe next week I'll try some meatloaf. Then I'm going to try some french fries, and then I'll take a milkshake. Whatever I feel, whatever I want, I will eat, and I will taste, and I will say I've done no wrong, and I will move on. Speaking here specifically of the treatment of sex, right? And that's a challenge, right? How do you treat sex? Do you treat it as just, you know, I I want to have sex, and so I'm looking, and I'm just kind of deciding what kind of food I want. Or do you treat it as something precious and something that is like gold? He begins to talk about this and he says this again in in chapter 5 where he says, Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Right? He's continuing this idea as all over Proverbs he's saying that wisdom is sexual exclusivity in a covenant. I know many of you probably are thinking right now, Carter, um, <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't know if this is going to happen. You know, I, I, I don't know if I actually could wait to have sex until marriage or if I could decide to work at now not having sex until marriage or how in the world I should abstain or, you know, and, and plus, let me, let me be honest. If I'm, if I'm thinking about it, two consenting adults who love each other or are attracted to each other on some level. I don't really see the problem. I don't really understand why it's a big deal. You know, part of what Solomon is saying here 
is that when you treat, you treat sex like gold, like something to wait, to enjoy in a covenant, it's deserving of much respect. It brings much value to sex. But not only is he saying that. He's saying that it has transformational power. And when you cheapen it, you lose that. Tim Keller says that when you view sex and you engage and live out the biblical sexual ethic, you come to find that sex can be like a sacrament. It's not a sacrament, but it can be like one. See, what a sacrament is, it's, it's an external, visible sign of an invisible reality. It's a symbol. So he's saying, when you treat sex like the biblical sexual ethic, and you say, you know what? It has transformational power. It is like gold. It is something beautiful. It is something to be handled with care and precious. And when you wait until this moment where you enter into covenant with someone else, when your needs are subjected to each other, it becomes like a sacrament. It's visible reality. See, here's one of the problems with engaging in sex until you're married. Is you're asking them to do with their body what they're not willing to do with the rest of their life. Right? You're saying, I want to engage with you physically, intimately. I want to be vulnerable before you. I want to be naked before you. Physically, be that way emotionally or spiritually. I'm not willing to, to share with you really who I am and what I'm dealing with and, and the insecurities I have and the anxieties that I have. I'm not willing to let all that stuff out. But I'll give you everything physically, but I'm going to hold back a lot of things emotionally and spiritually. C.S. Lewis says this quote, and I was reading it this week. It's, he puts it so well like he does everything. He says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all other unions which are, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate the pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. See, mar- see sex in marriage in a covenant is powerfully deepening because you have actually stood before someone and you have taken vows to commit to giving every part of you to that person. Not just giving yourself physically, but giving yourself emotionally, giving yourself intellectually, giving yourself spiritually to that person. And you have committed to taking in their needs and understanding their needs and saying, you don't have to market yourself anymore. You don't have to produce for me anymore. We are coming together as two separate people to be one flesh. And when you enter into sex in that relationship, it's not simply just an act that generates pleasure. Of course it does that. It's not just that. But it is an act, a symbolic act in many ways, of committing and symbolizing your covenant with each other. Of two people coming together. And submitting and giving each other what their needs desire. You see, sex is not meant to be taken. It's meant to be given. There's a big difference there. 
It's meant to be given as you come to understand the needs of the other person that you have elevated above your own needs. Because you're committed together in this forever till death do us part relationship. And so when you have sex inside of marriage, the covenant of marriage, you're committing all over again every single time. And you're symbolizing what you've done on that day when you stood before God and took vows. This is why also, you know, pornography and masturbation is so obviously not God's design either. Uh, It is the ultimate expression of consumer sexuality. There is only your needs involved. There's not even another person involved, right? Which is not the design of sex. It's not the design of quenching your thirst for sexual desires. It's not just to take. The design is to give. And it's powerful and it can be transformational in a relationship when you come to enjoy it. And when you treat sex like it's just something that you can take when you want. When you're thirsty, you reach down, you drink it. When you're hungry for fries, you go get fries. And when you want a burger, you go eat a burger. Or even when you treat it in a relationship, like let's engage in this, kind of determine whether or not we're compatible and I'm going to give you all of my body, but I'm not going to give you my heart and I'm not going to give you all of my mind and I'm not going to share with you all my insecurities. When you treat it that way, you cheapen and lessen its ability to be transformational in your relationship and in your life because you become desensitized. Because you've tried so many different types of food. And so when great food comes across your plate, how are you able to recognize it? How are you able to recognize it in your relationship, regardless of your past and regardless of what you've done? If you've already given that up, or you're continuing to give it up, you're not willing to work at holding those desires back until you covenant, you're giving up so much. Because you're just taking instead of giving. You're losing that ability for it to be transformational. And so as the father in Proverbs is speaking to his son or he's speaking to his daughter and he's trying to help them to understand this as wisdom, he prays a very interesting prayer. And he he prays this. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. When we read that earlier or just now, were you blushing a bit? You know, you read that, you're like, why is this in the Bible? So let's break that down. You're like, harder no, please don't break that down. Well, no, <laughs> we're going to break that down, right? He says, let your fountain be blessed. Literally, here's what the father is praying over his son or his daughter. He's saying, now with all this in mind, as you come to find wisdom and you understand the biblical sexual ethic and why it is actually wise and what it can do in your relationship as it transforms your relationship and be powerful, a symbol of committing and security. We don't have to market yourself. You don't have to produce. It's a safe place to really enjoy it. He says this, I'm going to pray over you that you have great sex in your marriage one day. That's what he's saying. He says, let your fountain be blessed. He's saying, you know, the, again, water, right, in this example is speaking of sexual desires. Let, all those sexual desires, let them be blessed. Let you be fully satisfied. Actually, what the Hebrew language is saying is, let it be so good that it... This is what he's praying, right? I told you Proverbs keeps it 100. And then he says, rejoice in the wife 
of your youth. He's implying here, right, that he's going to enjoy this in covenant with his wife or with her husband. They're going to enjoy this incredible sex in this covenant relationship. And he says, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. And then here's the part that everyone's like, what? Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Here's what he's saying. Again, it gets way more HBO than this, but we're going to keep it, um, you know, like TNT or something tonight. He says, let your sex be so powerful and wonderful and transformational in this covenant relationship when you enjoy it the appropriate way. That it's as if you're intoxicated. It's like, it's so good you go away unconsciously. You can barely walk. You're swerving as you, you can't even speak correctly. This is what he's saying. See, the father is, is revealing to his son or his daughter that it's not unnecessarily restrictive, the biblical sexual ethic. It's actually beautiful. It's not out of touch. It's actually wise. Eternally, for all times... It's not something to treat casually. It's actually powerful. It can transform a relationship. And what he's saying is when when you trust this, you're providing a platform. Whether you're dating someone or you will date someone, you're providing a platform to where the relationship can grow and connect appropriately in a healthy fashion to where that moment where you stand there at the altar, you haven't given everything away. And you're able to say, you know what, we're, we're covenanting now to give our mind, our heart, our faith, and our bodies to each other. And that's going to powerfully deepen our relationship as we're in this forever. He's saying it's beautiful. You know, you hear this and you think of this and maybe you laid aside your preconceived opinions and you're processing a lot of things. Remember, again, I said this isn't a message of judgment. This is a a message of wisdom. And it's asking you to think and to process. And you're thinking about this. And you're still asking yourself the question like, okay, but how do I do this? I mean, this is difficult. How do I do it? Jesus, in John chapter 4, meets a woman at, at a well. And uh, she's gone to the well, and she's getting water. And, and so Jesus, as he has this kind of conversation with her, she's drinking water because she's thirsty, right? She's fulfilling and quenching a need. And, and he says to her, listen, I know that water is going to quench your thirst, but what if I gave you living water where you would never be thirsty again? Like literally would fulfill all of your desires. And, and she responds to Jesus and she says, well, okay, yeah, that would be wonderful. Where do I get that? I mean, how do I find that water? And so Jesus says, well, go get your husband. And she says, I, sir, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds and he says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with or the man that you're sleeping with now is not your husband. So you read this and you think like, man, is, is, is Jesus like rubbing in her failed relationships? Is he casting judgment on her? Is, is he just being mean because he knows about her story and her past and the things that she struggles with and wrestles with? And the answer is no. What, what he's doing when he responds to her is he's saying, I mean, I know the source 
of satisfaction for you. You run to men. You run to sex. Because you have this deep longing in your heart to feel valued and to feel loved and to feel important. And you run to men for that. And they've continued to fail you. And you're still running to them. See what he's illuminating in her. And then he says to her, I am he that can fulfill those desires. I am actually the one that can make you feel loved. And I am actually the one that can make you feel valued. And I am the one that can actually make you feel important. You see, the, the, the response to wisdom in regards to our sexual issues and our sexual struggles is not to say, I'm going to have, you know, a five or ten point plan that's going to, you know, reinvigorate sex in my marriage or allow, you know, sex in this dating relationship to, to cease so we can commit ourselves, you know, in an appropriate way or I'm, I'm going to refrain as I'm single and I'm going to have all these steps. It's not that practical steps aren't helpful. It's that oftentimes when we don't deal with the true nature of what we're running to for satisfaction, we're just going to keep going back to the same thing over and over and over again. Because we want to feel loved, we want to feel valued, and we want to feel important. And so the question is, how in the world then do I struggle through this and do I run after this biblical sexual ethic? And the answer is you make Jesus your ultimate spouse. It says that he is that. See, we are in a covenant with Jesus. We're in a covenant relationship. And you have to make him in your life, in your actions, in your mind, your chief love. Regardless of whether or not you're married or you're dating or you're single, he has to be the supreme love, your ultimate spouse. And if you're married to someone, you actually spend time with them. You can't claim to be married to someone that you never spend time with. See, if Jesus is your ultimate spouse, if he is your chief love, then you spend time with him. You read his word, you pray, you come together with his people for worship daily. If he is your ultimate spouse, you spend time with him. You see, Jesus in the gospel, as we read what the gospel means and we understand its implications, he enters into this covenant with us. And unlike the covenants that we enter into, when you stand at the altar and you get married to somebody, you say, until death do us part. And actually, for Jesus, death does not do us part. It actually is where we're reconnected fully, completely with Christ. And actually, death was the catalyst for the relationship for us as he gave his life for our life. So through his death, we are actually invited into a relationship with him, this covenant relationship. And then as death is experienced, even in our own life, we are reunited with our bridegroom with our ultimate spouse jesus and so if we want to be people that stop running to sex to fulfill that desire to feel loved and important and valued because let's be honest if we strip away everything you say well i just i I have sex because it's enjoyable of course but if you strip it all away it's because you want to feel loved and valued and important you want to feel wanted and, and if we keep running to sex to fulfill that, it's going to be like eat, drinking water when you eat something really spicy. You know, it feels good for a moment, but then it just elevates the heat. That's what happens. Instead, we need to begin to run to Jesus and to say, Jesus, you're my ultimate spouse. I can find all the value 
I could ever need. I can understand that I'm fully loved by you, and I can understand that you value me and treat me as important because in your eyes, I am very important. You wanted me so much that you died for me. And when you spend time with him and treat your relationship with Jesus that way, you come to find that you can run after some really difficult things like this. To put sex in its proper place and treat it like gold. Instead of treating it just like water that anybody drinks from. Let's pray.